tracking the amazing growth of the first century church to challenge and inspire the 21st century church. This is Unstoppable Church, Then and Now, recorded on location in Israel, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Malta and Italy. Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont is in conversation for the next 30 minutes with David Taverner. Listening to the music in the background, Mike, makes me think there's a party going on somewhere. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Even Shalom Aleichem we're hearing in the background. Um, we can't quite see it from here, but it's almost certainly a bar mitzvah celebration. Just earlier, as we were walking to where we are now, we heard a shofar blowing, and uh, that's normally a sign there's some bar mitzvah procession going down towards the, the Kotel, the western wall, where it's probably going to take place today. And what is this towering above us, just behind us? Well, we've uh, come just a little further along the walls from where we've been in a previous episode to the, the corner of the southern wall where those great steps were that led into the temple precincts itself that we talked about in a previous episode and the western wall, what Jews today call the Kotel. Uh, these walls, remember, not walls of the temple, but part of the retaining walls that Herod the Great built to provide this huge platform to build the temple on. And we've come right at the corner of both the southern and the western walls. And it's massive. Yes, it is. It is absolutely massive. And uh, where we've come, there's, you know, the wall towers above us there would have been much taller even in the days of Jesus and the early disciples. Um, but as we can see, strewn alongside us here, uh, lots of those stones that were thrown down from the top, just as Jesus prophesied would happen. Uh, it happened in AD 70, the end of the Jewish-Roman War, AD 66 to 70, when the Romans eventually came, conquered Jerusalem and utterly destroyed it, destroyed the temple, flattened it, never to be rebuilt again and threw down many of the stones from the upper courses of the building. And some of these smashed down onto what was at that time the main street of Jerusalem. The main street of Jerusalem ran through its heart on the western side of the temple wall. And some of those stones came crashing down and, as you can see, smashed the, the stone pavement down below. One stone that does remain is a cornerstone from the top and it has in Hebrew, uh, to the trumpeting. And almost certainly that was the place where the trumpeters stood on the corner parapet, blowed their shofars to announce perhaps the beginning or ending of Sabbath or of Holy Day, something like that. So we're at an impressive place, but we're also at a sad place because of how it recalls how Jerusalem was destroyed. Why? Because they kept rejecting the one to whom it pointed. But why are we here in relation to the story of Acts? Well, we came here because we want to continue the story that we looked at in a previous episode of what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, remember, Pentecost was a Jewish festival before it was a Christian festival. It was one of those three great occasions when every Jewish man had to come to the temple here in Jerusalem to honour God, Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. And so all the Jews would have been gathering up there, hundreds of thousands of them in those great courtyards for that festival. And it was there that the Holy Spirit, we said in our previous episode, almost certainly came upon the disciples where Peter preached boldly and where people started 
to respond. And it's it sort of how they responded and what Peter called for that we're looking for today to see what we can learn for what should we be doing as we're calling people to respond. So as we sort of left off last time, Peter was uh, full throttle with this amazing sermon. Yes, remember that as the Holy Spirit fell and the apostles and disciples started to speak in other languages as there was wind and fire filling the courtyards up there, the crowd gathered and said, what on earth's going on here? And Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, stood up and said, well, this is what Joel prophesied hundreds of years ago, the fact that God said, I'll send my Holy Spirit. Now, not just on special people, as it had been in the Old Testament, just prophets, priests, kings, not folk like you and me, but Joel had seen a day was coming when ordinary people, men and women alike, you know, the great and the good, but also the poor and the humble would be able to receive God's Spirit. And from that, he went on to preach about Jesus, what Jesus had done and taught about his death and resurrection, his ascension, uh, and the fact that he now reigns in heaven. And it called his listeners to repent in light of that, to change their lives, to turn round and to change from their attitude of hostility that had led to Jesus being crucified on the cross to one of welcoming Jesus as their Lord and King. And he spoke very directly, kind of almost blaming them for the death of the Messiah. Yes, he did. And I think it's very important, you know, we underline this is not an anti-Semitic thing that we're looking at here. Come on, Peter is a Jew and he's addressing his fellow Jews, but he is making them face up to the reality of what they participated in. They may not have hammered the nails into Jesus's hand, but, you know, the crowd that was there and called for crucify him, those who stood by in silence, and sometimes our silence makes us as guilty as if we had spoken out or acted out. So he is calling them to face up to what they were part of, to their responsibility. And I find that fascinating because, you know, at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel message is we have to face up to what we have been and done and to how far we have fallen short of what God calls us to be and do before we can begin to truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. There has to be a facing up. There has to be a, a recognition of it was me. I did it. And, and even if other people did it to me, at least saying, but how I responded was not correct. And it's that recognition and turning that the Bible calls repentance and that leads to us being our theme for this particular episode, saved. So it's not a blame game. That's not what Peter's about. No, absolutely not. Because I think Peter would have included himself in it. You know, he had long before learned that he was as sinful as everyone else. In fact, for him, it went back to the day Jesus called him in his fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee when he'd been fishing all night, couldn't catch anything. And Jesus said, cast your net on the other side. And he said, Lord, we've been fishing all night and I haven't caught anything. You know, I think we know a thing or two about fishing in this lake. But okay, Lord, I'll give it a go. And they caught the biggest catch of fish they'd ever had. And the first thing he says is, Lord, forgive me. No, forgive me, I'm just a foolish man. And what was that got to do with fishing? Oh, no, it wasn't about that. He had a moment of revelation of seeing who Jesus was and who he was and recognising how far he fell short of this man. And that's what all of us need to do to come to that point if we too are going to be saved like Peter called people to be 
on that day of Pentecost. So he wanted his, his fellow Jews to, to be to be saved, but, but saved from what? Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we just read those few verses mm. uh, that relate to this particular issue and, and then unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So Acts 2 and verse 36, he said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then let's pick up the story. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow, unstoppable church indeed. But my question was, saved from what? Well, do you know what? Salvation is, is a big theme in the Bible and it takes on all sorts of uh, dimensions depending on the circumstance that someone was in. So if we go back to the Old Testament, uh, salvation was fundamentally from things like slavery in Egypt. The Lord saved us, the Lord rescued us from there. Sometimes it might be something specific like in the Psalm, but the Lord rescued me from the danger that I was in. Many of the Psalms are songs of deliverance. So in the Old Testament, it seems very much a situational rescue. He got me out of the mess that I was in, but the mess tends to be a situation. It's interesting, by the time we get to the New Testament, it is still very much, in a sense, a situational thing, but not a geographical situation, a personal situation. Uh, it's about needing to be rescued from the spiritual situation you are in. And the, the New Testament describes that as sin. A bit of a religious word, perhaps, but what sin means is everything which causes us to fall short of God's standards. So it's not just things that we have done wrong or thought wrong, though it includes that, but it also includes the things that we have not done right, where we have not acted as God would have wanted us to act. So salvation is first and foremost in the Bible, a, a rescuing us, maybe use that word, a rescuing us from the situation we find ourselves in. But it doesn't just end there, because in the Bible also, salvation is never just from. It's never God rescued me from. It's God rescued me from and into. So it's always into something. So again, for Israel, in their history, they were rescued not just from slavery in Egypt, but they were rescued from slavery in order to go into the promised land. In the New Testament, we are rescued from our sin, not just for Jesus to then say, well, there you go, you know, off you go now, try and keep yourself clean, try and live a good life. No, we're rescued from our old life of sin and we are rescued into a new way of living with him. What is called uh, very often in the New Testament into the kingdom of God, living life God's way, living life 
under God's rule. There's a lovely passage in Colossians 1.13 where Paul sums it up like this. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. From darkness into love, into light. So when we are sharing the good news of Jesus, it can never just be, hey, you need rescuing from this. It's, hey, you need rescuing from this. And we would like to invite you into this fantastic life of walking with Jesus together that is his kingdom. I was thinking of, you know, a sort of seaside rescue service that saves people from drowning. You're kind of explaining that salvation is a bit more complicated than that because sometimes I don't suppose we realise we're drowning. No, absolutely not. And sometimes it needs got to open our eyes um, to that, doesn't it? I think it's a good picture in terms of the rescuing from uh, because all of us need that lifeboat, as it were, to come out when we're caught in a storm and often caught unawares. Uh, I was only talking last week with a friend who had been out paddleboarding in a bay, went out a little bit too far and hadn't realised there was like an undertow, a current. And before he knew it, uh, he was being pulled out. His friend with him managed to grab hold of a boy and they managed to call out the RNLI, which is a rescue service in England. Um, but he got carried away. So, you know, sometimes we can think we're doing okay. We can think we're doing okay in life. Where are we going? What are we doing? There's nothing wrong with that. But we forget that these things often have an undertow that carries us somewhere and we end up being somewhere where we never intended to be when we set out. So... It's a good picture in terms of the rescue that Jesus brings. But, yeah, some of us don't know we've ended up in a bad situation. Some of us ended up in it, and we do know, but it's not where we intended. But, of course, we have a lot of people in the West today, don't we? You think, oh, okay, thank you very much. You know, I've got a decent life. I'm kind to the dog. I don't kick it. I provide for my family, and the kids are well-behaved, and I've got a decent job, and I'm involved in the community. And they are genuinely good, decent people, and often think, I have no need of God. Yeah, you may not feel you have need of God, but do you know what you do? And you do, because one of the things I've not mentioned is quite a big word that occurs in the Bible. And we often don't talk about it these days but it's very clear in the bible that if we live a life without god if we live this life without god we will spend the next life without god this life is not all there is we're not just a, a body and a mind we're a body and a mind and a spirit and when this body dies our spirit continues and it continues either in an eternity of joy and fulfillment spent with god or an eternity spent apart from him and that, Jesus said, is sheer hell. That's the actual word that he used to describe it. Hell in those days was the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. So we might feel we're doing okay. We might feel we've got no particular need until some crisis comes. You know, if I had a pound for every person uh, who had come to church when they were in a crisis and then stopped coming the minute the crisis was over, I'd be a very rich man. But I think we need to be aware this life isn't all that there is to be lived for. We need to think about what is my relationship with God and what is going to happen to me and my loved ones when I die. 
But what, what is this salvation? What, what happens? I mean, is it just a matter of sort of nailing your colours to the mast? Well, it's, it's partly that. But, you know, Peter explains what's involved. Uh, and I think this is so important because, as I noted in a, in a previous episode, it's the first time people have ever said, how can we experience God like you guys have just done? How can we experience this Holy Spirit? And he says this powerful phrase, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's clear here that if we want to be saved, I know that sounds a bit of a religious old word, but it's a very biblical word. If we want to be rescued from ourselves, from our situation, from the destiny that lies ahead of us without God, what do we do? Well, the first thing is we, we have to repent. Peter says that means face up to things, face up to life as we have been living it, life without God, and recognize that we're lost without Jesus. The word repent in Greek is metanoia, which means a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and action. So we really need to say to Jesus, I am Sorry, if you want me to put it in simple words, I am sorry for the way that I have lived without you. And I choose to stop, acknowledge I've been wrong, turn 180 degrees, and now start to follow you. That's what to repent means. It doesn't mean just to bemoan your sin. It certainly doesn't mean to feel sorry for yourself. It means to say, I was wrong, I've been wrong, I'm going the wrong way. Jesus, I'm stopping, I'm turning around, I want to start following you and I believe that you died on the cross to forgive me all of that stuff in the past. Then Peter says, second, get baptised. Now, you know, many of us will be accustomed to babies being baptised or christened in the West these days. That's a big tradition for many churches, but of course here in the New Testament it would have been a baptism by immersion dipped into one of these mikvot ritual baths that surround the temple area here. Why? Well, Paul describes it in Romans 6 like a funeral. He says, you know, your old life's finished with now. You can't go back to it anymore. Let's bury you. Not literally, of course. (laughs) And as you go down under the water in New Testament terms, it's like your old life being buried and you're saying, I've done with it. I don't need it anymore. And as you come up out of that water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus declaring, I've begun a new life with him. I have been born again. Jesus has changed me. This is not something I can do. I can't, this is not about making myself better. It's about repenting, acknowledging I've been going the wrong way, turning, trusting Jesus, saying, I'm crying out to you, Jesus, for forgiveness. And Peter goes on to say the third thing, you will you know, receive the forgiveness of your sins. If you ask Jesus to forgive you, what you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you, what's been said against you, whether it's active or passive, God can forgive that. I would want to say today to all our listeners, there is nothing that God cannot forgive. Please do not sit there listening to this thinking, yeah, Mike, David, but if you knew what I had been, what I had done, what's been done to me, you'd understand why I can't do that. No, no, I don't, because Jesus took it all. He took it all and he paid the price for all that sin 
in his death at the cross. And when he died on the cross, he shouted out, it is finished. In Greek, that word is tetelestai. It's a, it's a commerce word. It means all paid up. Hmm. When he died on the cross, he was saying, I took your sin. And do you know what? It's all paid for. Past, present, future, even sin you've not done yet. I've paid for it. All you have to do is believe me, trust in me, put your confidence in me, and now start to live a life that's different by following me. So it's not just about making a quick prayer. It's not about pulling your socks up. It's not about saying, Jesus, forgive me, and that's it, and going back to living life how you did. It's about turning around, trusting in him, and starting to live a new and exciting life with him through the power of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus then gives to us, Peter said on that day of Pentecost. I mean, everybody, I suppose, has a choice to make in life. You know, is this just a life choice? I mean, some people follow different philosophies of life, different religions, different faiths. It's not really a life choice, though it does lead to a life change. Um, this is about following a person. You know, Christianity is first and foremost relational. It is about a new relationship with Jesus Christ, whom you discover loved you enough to die for you, to pay the price of your sin, to, to open up a way to Father God so that you have direct access to God. You can share your life with God and let him share his life and power with you. So it's about making a decision to follow him so that through his spirit, he now comes and puts that energizing power within you that we need to start living life differently. So it's about him changing us as we respond to him rather than us trying our best to change. But people still say, you know, there's lots of routes to God. Yes, they do. And you know what? They used to say that in Jesus's day as well. I think we almost think that that's something new that we've invented and discovered. But it's always been like that throughout world history and certainly was in the time of the New Testament. Any city that the apostles were going to go into to preach would have had many gods that they could have chosen. But the interesting thing is neither Jesus nor the apostles nor the prophets of the Old Testament will ever accept this idea that um, well, there are lots of ways, really, though, brackets, we think this is the best, close brackets, or this is the one that works for us. Actually, the Christianity is the most, what's technically called, the most particularistic religion in the world. In other words, it says, I'm sorry, I know this might sound arrogant, but this really is the only way to come to God. Now, why do we say that? Well, we say it because... If we're going to be followers of Jesus, then surely at the heart of following must be a believing what he said. And one of the things that Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Many people just stop there. But he went on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you might want to say, that's arrogant. And we could have that discussion. But... This is what Jesus said. If I am going to be an authentic follower of Jesus, I don't know how I can soften that. And the apostles, those first followers of Jesus, will go into this sort of multicultural, multiracial world of the first century 
saying the same thing. Paul will say in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, for example, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not if anyone is in, you know, any religion they've found that works for him. So the Christian message is quite clear. We would respect people of other faiths. We're not saying they're not good people. But to be an authentic follower of Jesus, I surely have to align myself with what he said, that he is the only way to the Father. And why could he say that? Because of all the religions in the world, Christianity is the only one that claims it was God in person who came into this world in Jesus. Not as a prophet, not as some good man or guru, but as God incarnate come into this world. And it is God incarnate, God himself, who loved me enough to gave his life for me. And frankly, am I going to have, yeah, I'll use this word, the arrogance to say, you paid that price for me, but actually, yeah, I think it's okay, but I would prefer this way instead. No, if we're going to be an authentic follower of Jesus, then salvation the Bible tells us, really is through Jesus alone. So if I sort of accept this salvation thing, how is my life going to be different? Oh, well, let's say, first of all, it, it, it is going to be different. Um, you know, people become Christians in different ways. There are people who have sudden encounters with God, like Paul on the Damascus Road, like the senior pastor that I still work with in my semi-retirement, uh, who had an encounter with Jesus through reading John's gospel on his own and Jesus came and met with him in his room that night. So there are people who still have that. There are others who become increasingly aware of what their faith is and their implication. And actually that was more my own journey. I first started going to church at the age of 18 between leaving school and going up to university through a friend at school inviting me along to their church youth club and he said there's great young people there we do great things and uh, I said where does it meet and he said at the local Baptist church and I said oh maybe not and then he said the magic words there are lots of pretty girls <laughs> and I asked what time uh, and I started going and yeah we did fun things but I looked at these young people and there was something about them and every night we got a sort of short message from one of the youth leaders from the Bible and as I kept listening to this, I kept thinking, that makes sense, that makes sense, because I'd heard lots of these stories when I'd been to Sunday school as a young boy. And somewhere between the start of the summer holiday and the end of the summer holiday, somewhere in that three-month period, I transitioned from the old kingdom of darkness to Jesus' kingdom of light. I, I don't know the actual moment where it happened, though I do remember one night getting down on my knees beside my bed and saying, Jesus, I'm sure I know you now, but just to make sure, I want you to know, I give my life to you. And I looked at my watch, waited for the second hand to reach the top and said, now, because <laughs> I wanted to make sure I'd done it properly. <laughs> so, you know, it might be momentary, it might take time, but we know when we have moved from our old life to our new life and following Jesus and and it, it comes out in a whole number of, of ways you know there's a new self we sense something has changed in me now look I'm not perfect yet I am not sinless some of the old things I used to do still dog my footsteps to this day and increasingly we have to call on Jesus and the help of his Holy Spirit to work them 
but I am what the New Testament calls regenerated, given a new being within. So I have a new self. Second, I have a new situation. I am now a child of God. I have a new standing before him. It's what the New Testament calls being justified, being declared not guilty before God, being adopted as his child. And that new self leads to a new situation and standing before God. And now, because of my new self within and my new situation, that now starts to lead to new steps. Now, my life, step by step, begins to change. I start to see, do you know what? I can't talk like that anymore. I can't pull people to pieces like that. I can't talk about my boss behind his back. I can't go sleeping around with people. I can't cheat like I used to cheat. I can't use that sort of language anymore. And it will be different things for different ones of us that were big things in our life. And, and, and slowly, little by little, the Holy Spirit within us starts to put his finger on things that leads to new steps of change, new life, so that this salvation now gets outworked. Really important to note, getting saved leads to a new way of living. But a new way of living will never lead to us getting saved. And as we have been following this story in Acts, as the believers were growing in numbers, each of them then were having this personal understanding of what salvation meant for them. Yes, absolutely. But the wonderful thing is it never stayed personal. There is no such thing as solely personal salvation in the New Testament. It is personal and leads immediately to corporate. Because on that day, as those 3,000 people were saved, we ended up by reading that 3,000 were added to their number that day. In verse 47, we read that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we were never saved to be an individual Christian. We were saved to become part of God's people and to walk this saved life together. Why? One, because I need your help, David, and you need mine. And we need the help of our local church. And, you know, maybe sometimes we criticize our local church and grumble about it, but I want to say you need your local church. And if you're a Christian and you're not stuck into a local church, you need to get stuck in with one because UCB, lovely as it is, can never replace being part of a local church where you are loved and where you can love, where you can teach and be taught. So it is personal, but it's never solely personal. It has to become corporate because only together can we truly show the world, now this is what life looks like. This is what society looks like when people who've been saved and in whom the spirit of Jesus is living start to live together. Come and look and see what life looks like in God's kingdom when Jesus is really in the midst. Wow, this is salvation worked out together and it is amazing. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner traveling from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond to track the amazing growth of the first century church and what that means for the unstoppable church of the 21st century. There are more Bible podcasts from Mike and David on the UCB Player app and major podcast platforms. Check out Jesus Then and Now or Bible Books in 30 Minutes.